This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. To receive a free copy of Bob Buford's classic book, Halftime, moving from success to significance, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead. Once again, I want to thank uh, everybody who's been listening, reaching out to me uh, about the topic for my upcoming TED Talk. And, and I would still love your input on some of your thoughts on what that message should be, uh, you know, a title, some of the key points. You guys have, you know, over the last three years, we've uh, just developed so many great relationships through this podcast. And so I'd love to hear from you. Just shoot me an email at john at eternalleadership.com. Love to hear your thoughts on that as we're putting all that together. And uh, really excited about today. You guys are going to love this interview uh, with Wade Myers. Wade, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. It's great to be on. And uh, Wade and I first met each other. We, I had just moved back to Minnesota, and this was, oh my gosh, this was in 1999, Wade. And I moved back to Minnesota to start a company with one of my high school friends, and we were just getting settled in. We take our little kids to the Mall of America, and we're waiting there uh, for our kids to ride, uh, I think it was those, uh, like the semi-trucks, you know, things that go around in that big loop. And your kids were on there, and, and we just started chatting, and then Wade invited me to, to church, to join the church. It was, uh, um, and Don and I made that our home church, and just uh, you and your wife, Andriana, just welcomed us into your into your world. And man, we sure, we always just appreciated you just, you know, you asked me, that was one of the first things you asked me is, hey, you're new here, you know, where are you going to church? And uh, man, Don and I have just always appreciated that. Well, you know, it's uh, that's uh, that's always fun to do, and uh, I, I just I loved your story. Uh, you know, you just had gotten out of the military, were a fighter pilot, and being ex-military myself, you know, there was kind of an immediate connection, and just wanting to welcome you and get you connected. So, uh, yeah, that was that's a fun memory. I'm glad that that was uh, uh, that that turned out the way it did, and that that was helpful for you and Donna. Yeah, that was awesome. So, well, let me share with you guys a little bit about Wade. Um, uh, this is going to be a really powerful interview, and you know, Wade, you're just uh, this incredible entrepreneur. Uh, you advise and consult with people. You're an investor. You speak. I know that you founded or co-founded. Uh, I believe it's over 25 companies. Uh, you currently lead uh, a small business advisory firm right now, Boldmore uh, Partners. It's Boldmore.com. If you guys want to check it out, B-O-L-D-M-O-R-E. And uh, you have two, uh, you're a partner in a couple investment funds and uh, a faith-based venture capital firm and a faith-based real estate investment firm. You also served as an airborne ranger in the army. I know you got the, uh, the bronze star for your service in Iraq and the Gulf War back in 91. And, you know, thank, it's, uh, as we're recording this, it's Veterans Day weekend. So, Wade, thank you for your service and everybody else listening who's a veteran or active duty or is a family member, spouse, you know, brother, sister, son, daughter of uh, somebody serving or a veteran, you know, thank you because it was, you know, it's that support that I know was huge for Wade and I as, as we went through and, and, and served our country. That's sometimes as, as hard or harder than being deployed in the work that we did, isn't it, Wade? 
Yeah, and I, I appreciate your service. I suspect you had a lot more fun as a as a fighter pilot than I did, uh, you know, as a snake eater. But either way, it was such a great experience and, and a, a, real, a real blessing to serve. So I'm grateful for it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we can compare notes. But, man, I admire the work you did. I don't think I had the... Uh the the mental fortitude to go through what you guys do to be trained in special forces man that you know just you know huge respect for that um and then you, you got out of the military uh you were a baker school graduate at the harvard mba program and uh i know you're married to andriana you got five kids and now you live down in uh in texas so here, here's what I'd like to, to do just so people can connect to you and know more because you have just uh, just such incredible deep wisdom. And I know there's a lot of people in your life who and everybody I run in who knows you, Wade. It's just like you are just an incredible mentor, discipler, coach in their lives just because, you know, who you are. But I'd love you to maybe kind of rewind the tape a little bit and share a little bit about, you know, kind of your story growing up. I know you have you had a interesting childhood that led to, I think, a lot of the things that you're you did and are doing now. Well, it, it was kind of unique. Uh, it, I grew up with a Mennonite background, so we were not in a colony, but we were on a, a small farm and no electricity or indoor plumbing or television or telephone or anything. And, you know, kind of living off the land, a typical subsistence lifestyle. And because we didn't have any money, if we ever needed something, we had to come up with money, right? So my, my mother was very creative. And uh, I remember at one point when uh, uh, I was, uh, we went from a little country school to a, a county public school, and I, I had uh, 30-some uh, classmates. And I was, I was becoming aware that my mother's home-sewn clothes made me stand out and so I wanted some store-bought clothes and she challenged me and she said well that's just fine but you come up with the money young man if you want to you know wear fancy clothes so starting in the sixth grade I started working construction after school and uh, just you know by the time I was in high school working full-time and trying to uh, you know figure figure life out right but it was uh, I would say my 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 parents were very creative and did whatever was necessary we always did lots of little entrepreneurial projects uh, but I learned to sell as a boy um, back in those days it was you know, a little country town was fairly safe uh, I'd have my mother take me to town and drop me off on one end of the town and I'd walk all the way down Main Street uh, to the other end of town, knocking on doors and selling stuff. I sold everything from you know, light bulbs to you know medical supplies to just whatever I, I could sell. And it was it was a blast. But I learned how to sell. A lot of it was uh, sympathy sale. Right? You know, the, the other, this little nine year old boy knocking on the door. You take um, it though, right? Yeah, it's like I actually uh, was able to make some money. But once once I got older, that's when I was about nine. I started doing that. When I got older, I started working construction. But I always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial, uh, you know, drive and experience from just doing stuff like that. And then, so after, so uh, you know, with uh, graduating high school, um, did you go straight into the army, or did you go through college first? I was going to just stay in construction uh, because it, it paid a lot. I, I had um, no intentions of going to college. It was totally a fluke that uh, I was getting packed up and ready to go to Alaska to weld on the Alaskan pipeline because I heard they could make $5 an hour, which was great gobs of money in, in my uh, 
16-year-old mind. And my, one of my best friends from high school stopped by our little farm to say goodbye on his way to college at North Dakota State University in Fargo, the other end of the state. I grew up in the Montana and North Dakota border. And uh, he said, you know, would, would you mind just driving down with me? It's a long drive. My parents are kind of worried. And then uh, I'll help you, you know, buy a bus ticket and you can come back home and then you can go to Alaska. And I, I said, sure. I grabbed a couple of things, jumped in his car. And well, you know, I ended up down at Fargo where NDSU was, crashed on my, my sister's couch. She was in school. She was enrolled in nursing school at NDSU. And she said, you know, wait, why don't you just you know, take a few classes. I mean, what's your rush? You can always go to Alaska next semester to weld, right? There's always going to be welding jobs. And so one thing led to another, and four years later, I graduated. And uh, But meanwhile, I joined ROTC. I wanted to serve. And I frankly, I needed the $100 a month that you got for, for being an ROTC. So, uh, right. I, so I, I got $100 I did, a month for my ROTC scholarship. And then, uh, yeah, and after graduation, then I went on active duty. And what, you know, you had a lot of choices, right? So, you know, what led you to going in and going down the track uh, to be an airborne ranger? Because that's a really select group that, that goes through that. Well, you know, frankly, I, I, always, um, uh, I always lacked confidence physically. I was, I was really small and a late bloomer. And so I, I was just kind of the, that little kid that was picked on and, you know, uh, during high school and so forth. And I think a lot of it was I kind of wanted to try to prove myself. Now, that's the wrong reason to sign up for a lot of difficult training. Uh, but I fell in with a couple of buddies in my officer basic training in the Washington, D.C. area. And they said, hey, this is what you want to do. And it's like, oh, really, I do? And, well, yeah, it's the toughest training there is. Come on. You know, so they, they kind of talked me into it. And uh, and I can I, and I can tell you it was extremely demanding. You do give in physically by about the second day, and then everything after that is just mental fortitude, right? Of of, of getting through the program. Uh, but I did gain a lot of leadership skills and a lot of physical confidence and and so forth. So I uh, the training was phenomenal, and I really did enjoy it once I got a lot of the difficult training out of the way. Because for me to to learn all those new skills was just really a lot of fun. Well, and you lost 49 pounds during that training. Yeah, so what I realized is that I had a very high metabolism. And <laughs> yeah. during during ranger training, you get one uh, little, in those days it was called a C-ration, right? You get a little box of a C-ration, had some crackers and maybe a little chunk of meat and a little can of fruit or something, a little peanut can, can of peanut butter. But, you know, one meal a day was all we were allocated. And there was no scheduled sleep for nine weeks. So you kind of slept between missions. You kind of caught an hour here, two hours there kind of thing, but nothing was scheduled. And if you didn't call in the aerial support properly, you didn't get your one C ration a day either. And so, man, I just, I, the, the, I mean, I looked like a POW when I came out the other end. My sister was an Air Force dietitian, and she picked me up at the airport when I flew back up to Washington, D.C. to get my car. And she was just crying, going, what did they do to you? <laughs> you know, it was horrible because I did not have 49 pounds to lose. But I, I barely made it through. I was so frail and so weak at the end. It's like, man, if there was just a couple more days, I, I would have failed out. You know, question for you, Wade, because I'm always fascinated by this. You know, the, the, you know, the people, like you said, right, it, this is all about mental toughness, and it's probably about a big part about mindset. And I'd, I'm, 
I would guess that there's a pretty direct correlation between the mindset that you really, you know, either found yourself in or developed that also has led to a lot of the other things you've done in your life with your faith, with your family and in business. And, you know, people listening out there, right? There's a lot, you know, people, we, we go through a lot of tough times, right? It might not be the, the kind of physical challenge that you had, uh, but it could be, you know, economic and physical and spiritual and and, you know, what is it that mindset that you developed um, that you think could really also, you know, serve other people well as they're out there really trying to reach for some, you know, some big goals and worthwhile dreams? Yeah, I think, that, you know, there's a couple of things that I really took away from all that special operations training. One is great leadership. I mean, man, you just can't beat it. Learning to lead under really arduous conditions mm. to where you are so tired and so hungry, and but you still have to lead. And so because you rotate through leadership positions and there, there's, you know, you got to step up. If you're in charge, you got to get all the rest of the men, you know, uh, on, on mission, on time, on task. And so that that has served me well that no matter like as an entrepreneur no matter how bad the day is no matter how many customers I've lost or what the issues are you still have to lead right no matter how bad you feel so that was one the, the other thing in terms of mental toughness is just you know going way beyond what you normally would right Right now, there comes a time in business, especially as an entrepreneur, where uh, you know there's there's times when you just have have to say, okay, that's it. I'm I'm not going to go any further, right? But in, but in most cases, as an entrepreneur, you're going to have a lot of bad days, a lot of bad news, and you have to be uh, just almost eternally optimistic and always striving to accomplish your goals and always pushing and pushing and pushing, right? Uh, and everyone is looking to you as the entrepreneur, as the founder, CEO, you know, as a small business owner, right? So it's really incumbent upon you to, um, to exhibit that kind of mental toughness and patience and the ability to think clearly no matter what's going on around you, right? The world might be just falling around you, but can you can you get through that moment and exhibit that leadership and that mental toughness and see things clearly and, and not be taken off task? So those are the kinds of things I think, you know, and, and the third thing is a sense of mission accomplishment, you know, and it's the same thing as a fighter pilot for you, right? I mean, man, if you were given a mission it's do or die. You get that mission done. And so uh, that that has served me well in business. The fact that if I have been given a task or I have you know set out a goal for myself, it's not done until it's done. And there's been, you know, many nights, you know, you know, around the clock kind of thing. I don't have any issue, you know, even now, if I've committed to a deadline, um, you know, i'll I'll easily skip sleep and and stay up or do whatever it is to, to to accomplish the mission. And so that, it's that, that kind of mindset, I think, really helps in business. Yeah, and I think, you know, casting that vision, you know, connecting people to what the mission is, is one of the, one of the most important things we can do as a leader. You know, there's a lot of people listening way too, that, you know, some of them are CEOs, they're running a company, but a lot of people, you know, they're kind of in the middle of that structure and their peers. And, you know, my message when I'm working with that group Right. You know, if you have the ability to influence people, even your peers, you know, you are you're part of leading that team. And, you know, we can step into that gap wherever we're at uh, to develop some of these things. And how important do you think it is or, you know, how did you do this with, you know, the teams that you ran, both, you know, military, 
and as you, you know, ran companies to really help connect people to kind of the why and the mission, uh, you, you know, and, you know, sometimes the work we do, it just, you know, it feels like a grind, but we have to give people a reason to understand, you know, why the, the grind has meaning sometimes. Yeah, so a couple things, and it was a, a maturing process for me, right? So when I was uh, on active duty the first time around, it was peacetime army. Mm-hmm. And frankly, we didn't have a purpose. And we had a lot of discipline issues with the regular army, not special operations. But I did a, I did one tour of just sort of regular army unit and just thought, wow, this isn't for me at all. Uh, but it's really funny because I saw a, a, a military you know, in the mid 80s without purpose because we weren't at war and it was just kind of training and, you know, sending soldiers out to pick up cigarette butts on the parade ground, right? That was your mission for the day. And so that's when I first kind of ran into this fact that, you know what, we all, we have a God-given purpose, right? And we want purpose. Employees want to work for a company with values and with purpose, right? And so I I clearly saw that and it came out with discipline issues. Now, the funny thing about learning to lead and connecting teams with the mission and with the purpose is that when I first came out of the military, uh, I still had that kind of military mindset, right? Obey me because I'm the officer kind of thing. Right. And uh, that didn't go over real well in the civilian world. I worked for a, the, the chemical division of a large oil company. And I had one woman took, took, took me aside one day and she said, you know, I uh, here's some feedback for you. Nobody likes you. <laughs> it's kind of like, wow. Uh, and then I realized that I just kind of was coming off like just, you know, kind of barking orders, right? Uh, as opposed to true leadership, which is influencing people to do something. Well, it's a lot easier to influence people to do something when they have a very clear mission, a very clear purpose. Now, here's the funny thing also about business is that in most businesses, that purpose is simply something along these lines. Well, come join my company and help me me make a lot of money because I own the company, right? Or, or you know, and that's not a very big purpose. Yeah, you know. that's going to get your folks fired up. Yeah, that's not very significant. But, you know, so like Martin Scarelli, the guy, the hedge fund investor that bought the, the drug company and then jacked the price up, you know, like thousands time of times over to, to make money, yeah. uh, compared to a pharmacy executive says, our purpose is to cure cancer, come work for us and help us cure cancer, right? That's a much, much grander purpose. And so one of the reasons why I, I, I focus on faith-based businesses is if we approach business with that broader purpose of we are, business is mission, right? There's no sacred versus secular divide. Uh, whatever we do, wherever God has placed us, you know, we're, we're about God's business. And so that's a very clear purpose, right? To say, here's, you know, there's a business purpose, clearly. Here's what we're trying to achieve in terms of our business. But also, you know, we care about everybody. We care about all the constituents. We care about our community. There's, there's spiritual impact opportunities, et cetera. That's, uh, that, that's a much grander purpose, but it does have be clearly communicated. Um, you know, I, I go back to Nehemiah. Was, what I love about the, the, the whole book of Nehemiah is that when when he was, you know, he reconned the wall, right? He rode his horse all around uh, the outside of the wall uh, in Jerusalem to kind of do his reconnaissance. But then once he did that and he gathered the people together, he repeatedly told them the purpose that they were to rebuild the wall and he would say stuff like do this for your wives your sons and your daughters you know he kept connecting 
the people of God to the purpose of rebuilding the wall. And what a great example of a communicator uh, in terms of connecting that purpose to the people. Yeah, and I don't think we can over-communicate that enough. I mean, I would I would tell people, and you know, every meeting you have with your team, your staff, whether it's a multi-purpose team with your peers, but you know, m- connect it to that vision, that purpose, you know, that mission, and uh, but you know, you said something that, that I I, uh, I I love, right? That there's there really is no secular and they're sacred, right? There, I think that is this false construct that. Uh, uh, a lot of businesses and the you know business owners of faith you know Christians kind of look at you know I have to have this you know I have like these two competing worlds and that's not how God sees it right and you know this is all God's business right and business's mission and you know what advice do you have because I know you've always brought your faith into everything that you've done you know people out there right now that are in leadership roles in what I would call maybe a traditional company and you know what have you found that really has worked to kind of bring your faith into, you know, the the culture and you know what you do there and and working with people, maybe, you know, that uh, uh, are are not believers, but you know they're they're part of your team. Yeah, I think there's a a lot of great examples that I could I could cite, but the main thing is is to be um, be authentic in living out your faith and not being religious about it. You know what I mean? It's a huge difference because as Christians, this isn't about religion. It's about a relationship with God. And it's about seeing people as, you know, uniquely gifted and created by God for his purpose and treating them that way. So when I came out of the military and was, you know, barking orders at my employees uh, at a big oil company. I wasn't a believer yet, right? I became a believer in my 30s, so I was a kind of a midlife convert. Mm-hmm. But to me, you know, people were, you know, soldiers to be ordered around or employees to be ordered around. But once, you know, so whether you're an employee in, you know, in, in, in middle management or uh, an individual contributor employee or whether you're leading the business, approaching your work as an opportunity, as you know, the Apostle Paul talks about whatever you do, you know, do it as unto the Lord, right? Um, and so if we think about everything we do, whether we're just uh, a craftsman working with our hands, um, many examples in Proverbs about, you know, about that, right? We should do it with quality, and we should treat people around us uh, as um, as being special and having uh, unique needs and desires and their own purpose wired by God for for specific things. Uh, our communities, you know, if we value uh, people around us in the same way that God values them, uh, people can see that. We don't. I mean, in many cases, if I'm in, um, you know, presenting to a potential client, let's say, um, I don't. I don't ever bring up my faith in a way that hammers them. Oftentimes they will sense that and bring that up, or they, maybe they've read my bio or something, but that's the way it should be. It should be evident that there is something different about the way we approach our work and the way that we approach people and treat people. And of course we all make mistakes. Oh my goodness. I, I've made tons of mistakes, you know, and I, I'm sure there's lots of people out there that could jump up and down and say, well, there's this one time, you know, uh, so we, we do uh, often fail um, in, in terms of uh, trying to live this out perfectly, of course. But the idea is to approach everything we do at work 
with um, you know that sense of everything I do is being watched. It's a testimony. What I say, what I do, uh, how I treat people needs to be in a way that honors God and elevates those people and encourages them, and, and, and then we can accomplish more. And that leads to this, and this whole thing, one of the things that we were talking about before the show was how values-based or you know, faith-based businesses outperform secular businesses all day long. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it shouldn't be a secret, right? It's like one of these things you read like Forbes articles or Fortune articles, and they'll say stuff like, how does Chick-fil-A do it? You know, they're the fastest growing, one of the most successful fast food franchises. How do they get those teenage kids behind the counter to pretend like they care about customers? And and of course, <laughs> it's not that they're pretending. It's real. It's genuine. You know, you can, it, there's, there's a difference. And so customers see that but i can uh, there's a whole bunch of really good literature and data on on how faith-based businesses outperform and it's not just a little bit it's it's a lot uh because when we do live out our lives at work uh in, in a way that honors god and honors people around us uh everything improves yeah and you know when i was you know getting into business and and i was uh I became a believer after I got out of the military and uh, when I was uh, 27 years old. And one, one of uh, my mentors at the time, he said, you know what, uh, you need to, you can't be afraid to live in a glass house. You, you need to be the guy who's transparent and authentic and, you know, developing relationships with everybody around you, regardless of where they're coming from, what their belief systems are. Because you have to create something that's attractive to them that they might want to move toward. And when you create mm-hmm. that relationship, you create that connection, you know, then you have that kind of that ability to kind of pull and to influence um, in their life. So, you know, I, I don't think I, I think, you know, we get a lot of feedback from, you know, business owners and they, they really struggle with, you know, how do I really bring my faith you know, into my, my culture. And I think you just shared, you know, just how to do that, right? Just be authentic um, to what Christ has taught us. And, you know, well, and live, live out our life in the, the business arena, just like, you know, uh, like he would if, if he was there with you. Yeah, so I, I'll share one story with you. So I had started this company and had hired a guy to run, to open up a a second market, right? So I was running one market as a CEO and hired him and moved him to a new market he had never been in before. And um, I I have no idea, you know, uh, what his background was or where he stood in in matters of faith at all. Uh, You know, nice guy. I enjoyed working with him. And, And he was in place for several months. And I'd say the first three months worked really hard and I was really impressed and it was fun and we'd talk often and I'd encourage him, you know, as he was trying to break into this new market and basically selling for us, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then and then it's kind of like the next three months were just horrible. I mean, it's just like, man, the guy wouldn't return my calls. He wasn't, you know, nothing was happening. It just it was obvious that he wasn't getting any momentum and almost like he stopped working. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, and I would talk to him on the phone and say, "What's going on?" You know, kind of. I kind of upset, and finally, I just I decided oh, I've got to I got to fire the guy. I'm just I'm just kind of mad. Big mistake, you know. Wasted, you know, six months of compensation, so forth, and probably going to have to just shut down the, all the efforts that I had invested in trying to get that new market started. So I I told him I say Dri- drive up, you know, and he was only an hour or so away. 
and uh, and let's just let's just kind of have a thorough review of how things are going, and uh, and so I had prepared a, a letter to fire him, and you know like two weeks severance, and just you know I was I was up I was I was kind of righteously angry, you know like uh, you know this guy's not working, and so he comes up to my office, and and I bring him in, and my style is to always get employees to fire themselves if I can, right? Yes, me too. So I start off. Yeah, so I start off with, hey, you know, uh, how do you think it's been going, you know? Uh, not that well. Well, um, why, why do you think it's not been going that well, you know? He kind of stumbles and fumbles, and I'm kind of probing, well, why do you think that, you know? And why do you think we're not getting results? And um, and I'm you know, I'm probably bordering on a little bit harsh, you know, just I'm very direct, right? Very direct in terms of why do you think that is? Why do you think this is? And, and he starts crying. And he said, uh, my, my wife left me three months ago and I just, I, I've had a really hard time dealing with it. I'm sorry. And so I went from, you know, just being ready to grab that letter I'd already written and signed and telling them you're, you're fired to, I could just feel the Holy Spirit prompting me to no, no shift focus completely. It's time to comfort this guy. You know, this guy, he's, you know, a grown man crying in my office. So I, I immediately got up, went over to him and hugged him. And uh, he stood up as I approached him, you know, and he's crying um, on my shoulder and I'm hugging him. And, and it doesn't matter to me. I'm not worried about there's no law that I'm going to break. And I just said, let me pray for you. And while I'm hugging him, I'm just praying that, you know, God would give him peace and restore his marriage if at all possible, you know, et cetera. And then, uh, and I, I stayed in that mode of, man, I can't really afford, you know, not to fire him. I can't really afford a long severance. But I basically said, so what, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to go after her. She moved back to, you know, several states away. She's living with our daughter and I need to pursue her. And I said, oh, okay, great answer. Um, uh, what does that look like? Right. He goes, well, um, I, I guess I, um, I, I need, I need to leave. And so I need to resign. Um, I don't really have any money. I'd, I'd love to get some kind of a severance and, uh, I've got, you know, several months remaining on my lease. Uh, you know, he kind of started laying things out and I just, you know, I just kind of felt prompted to, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll give you, uh, how about three months severance, even though I only want to give him a couple of weeks, right? I couldn't really afford three. It just seemed like the right answer, right? I'll, I'll take care of your lease. You know, send me the rest of your lease. We'll, you know, we'll just pay it off. Uh, what else is there, you know? And, uh, and so we just got to said, hey, do this for me. When you get back, you know, to your office, just kind of write up a bit of a turnover plan, but just, I want you to focus on pursuing your wife. Mm-hmm. So he, he moved back. Um, things ended up kind of developing to where he called me and said, can you be a reference? I got this job opportunity. I said, sure. I, I, I he, he had worked hard those first three months, and he had done a lot of things that were very impressive. So I gave him a good, honest reference, right, uh, in terms of what he was capable of. And uh, and he got that job. And then later that ended up, he ended up bringing us a whole bunch of business to my business. I opened up a whole new branch down there where he was at in this whole new state and uh, brought us home. And then he ended up, I rehired him to run all that business that he had brought us. And, uh, and what I told him that day in my office, when I was hugging him and praying for him, I said, and when I stepped back, I said, Alan, uh, his name was Alan. I said, I'm going to send you some books to read, including, uh, one of them was, uh, the five love languages, which is a wonderful Christian marriage counseling book. Yep. And, uh, and I, and I said, and my family and I are going to be praying for you and your wife every single day during our family devotions that we have every evening. 
and and we did and my kids my kids were little um they were probably six four and two and and every night you know they prayed for mr allen you know and and everyone so that asked did mr allen become a believer yet daddy or did he you know uh, did he, he and his wife get back together and i'd say no you know uh, but over time we kept faithfully praying and then one day i got an email from him and he said i wanted to let you know that i became a christian and it's a really big deal, and I'm making some changes. And then his, his, meanwhile, his wife had divorced him and didn't want to talk to him at all. And then one day he said, I wanted to let you know that um, I'm, uh, I'm now dating my ex-wife. She has uh, agreed to talk with me, and I'm, I'm picking her up on dates, and we're starting to try to rebuild a relationship. And, and then, um, of course, what ended up happening, the full story, is she became a believer, and they got remarried. And uh, so all of that from just living out my faith authentically in my office, even though I was angry with the situation and frustrated and just wanted to fire the guy, uh, listening to the urgings of the Holy Spirit, and instead hugging him, praying for him, sending him books, you know, paying off the, you know, all that, all that, you know, that's how you live out your faith. Um, Now, could he, and I, by the way, I have never had anyone refuse prayer. I just had a, a woman that works for me just yesterday describe a problem with her daughter, um, and, you know, and uh, and I said, what, what's her name? I'll, we're going to we're going to pray for her, you know, and she said, oh, thank you. No, I have no idea where she's at in terms of faith. Um, she knows where I'm at. Right. And she knows that we're we're praying for her daughter. That's an example. But there that, you know, there's every every day there's opportunities like that. And whether you're again, you're, um, um, you know, an employee in an organization, whether you're leading the organization, it's um, it's living out your your daily um, life like that. Well, you know, and to pull some things out of there that I think are, you know, can really be helpful to people. Right. I'm I'm always thinking about, you know, what's the reason behind the reason? And you did that really well. You brought him in, and, you, in, in, you know, you had your thoughts and opinions formed, but you started asking questions. And I think that's really important for us to really, you know, you know, think about what Jesus did when he walked here, right? He asked questions. He got, you know, he knew all the answers before he asked them, but he had people share. And one of the things he did incredibly well that's a model for us is to provide solutions and a path forward for people. And, you know, that's what you did with this man. And then, you know, you, you, uh, the other thing that you did too is in that moment, having that clarity and just kind of listening to what the Holy Spirit kind of shared with you. And you made, you know, you acted on that. And I think, you know, both of those together when we're, you know, dealing with people, you know, offering prayer, you know, that was on your heart to do. Uh, is just something that, you know, we can all do in all of our interactions that we have with other people in any organization that we're in, right? We define an organization as, you know, two or more people that have a common purpose. That could be a small group, marriage, you know, a company, a work team, whatever it happens to be. And so, uh, but I I love how, you know, the other thing too that you did, so many people will say, uh, Wade, hey, I'll pray for you. And do they really pray for you? It almost sounds for a lot of Christians like a throwaway line. And I would just tell people, if you're going to say that to somebody, do what Wade did and, you know, and be intentional about it and, and, and do it daily and, and to the extent you can follow up with the people that you're praying for. 
Yeah, I would I would ping him because he, he worked for me for a few more years yet, right? Uh, what he started in that new market is a massive market for us now. It's really interesting. So I'm still uh, one of the owners of that company. I'm uh, chairman of the company. So I'm not involved on a daily basis, but as chairman of the board. But we still have um, a, a lot of business that that guy got started. And he now is a client of that particular company. So there's this ongoing. So the funny thing is, good things come out of that. Right now, I wasn't expecting that that day. Let me, you know, let me pray for him. And then maybe someday that will be some business opportunity here. Not, not at all. But what, what we did pray for him for probably, I'm going to say it was at least two full years, every single night. And, and you know, and then the emails or the phone calls, you know, uh, he, he still worked for me, would come in with these updates and I could go home and tell my family, hey, guess what? You know, so, yeah, it's uh, you're right. There are spiritual disciplines that go with that, you know, living it out in the workplace as well as being disciplined about, um, you know, following up on, on what you say you're going to do. Yeah. So great, great advice for people there and just great modeling that way. And, you know, and, and I'd love to talk about, too, in the time that we have, you know, your, you know, you have a unique perspective, having invested in so many companies, started, run so many companies, you know, the advisory work that you do now, you know, viewing, you know, kind of inside of uh, a lot of different cultures, right? It's kind of a unique landscape right now. Um in business, right? With our, with our culture, a lot of the things going on, you know, what do you think some of the difficulties that you're seeing that, you know, business leaders are facing and, you know, what, 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 do we, what, uh, what advice would you give them to move forward into some of those areas? Well, in, uh, you know, in terms of culture, it, that is difficult, but man, if we set aside culture for a minute, running a small business is just incredibly difficult. Now, this is what's really funny in my experience, right? So I was in the Army, big organization, right? Never had to worry about budget. You got what you needed. Uh, you know, then I, I you know, was uh, worked for a big oil company, right? And with, you know, in only three or three and a half years of that company, I was running a, uh, a division, a national division out of the national headquarters. And, you know, we had... You know, and within that company, we had 16 corporate jets. Uh, we had tons of resources, tons of skills. And I'm thinking, hey, business, this business thing is kind of easy, right? Uh, after business school, I was working for a very large uh, strategy consulting companies, working with very large clients. And then I moved to Minnesota and acquired a little business. And I was greatly humbled. And I realized that, okay, small business in general, it's, you know, kind of 100 to 200 million and below, right? So generally small business is considered sort of anything up to 100 or 200 million in revenue. Uh, so these not not necessarily tiny businesses, but small business in general, you have far fewer resources available to you. Uh, far fewer skill sets available to you. It's just super, super hard. But yet, small businesses in the U.S. create two thirds of all new jobs. And I, I was, you know, you talk about wisdom comes from experience, and experience comes from making mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. I was in such a different environment. So after several years of being in big business and big budget and all that. 
I'm anguishing over whether or not I can afford to buy a computer for an employee, right? One employee doesn't show up and I've got no capacity in an entire department for the day, right? I mean, it's just like, wow, this is hard. So I made a lot of mistakes. I had really good mentoring, but um, I, I just took a lot of notes, created lots of frameworks, and tried to uh, kind of lay out structure for how to be successful, even as failing here and failing there, right? Uh, it, it took a while for me to really get some traction and really learn that, wow, this is, you know, cash flow. I'd never had to worry about cash flow before. It's like there's all these things that I realized they didn't teach me in Harvard Business School. And so one of the things I started doing right away, way back then, when, you know, at the same time that we met at Mall of America was uh, creating um, structures, frameworks, kind of training, lessons learned uh, for for how to do how to do this right, how to run a small business properly. But in most cases, if you look at a small business owner, they're really good at doing the thing that they do. So whether they're a roofing contractor or you know a landscaper or whatever, they're good at delivering that the offering. Normally, they really suffer on the two bookends. You know, on one bookend is sales and marketing growth, you know, lead generation, uh, social media, all of that stuff, right? A lot of small businesses really struggle with growth. On the other end, it's finance, accounting, control, right? Typically, they don't know how to read financials. They don't have really good financials put in front of them anyway, and they don't really know, you know, what to do to kind of move the needle financially, right? Mm -hmm. So so part of the struggle is, you know, especially if you're in that half million in revenue, one, five million in revenue, you just, you can't afford really good, really skilled people, and you're kind of doing it all. You're kind of a jack of all trades, calling all the shots, making all the decisions. And that's just so painfully hard. And so one of the reasons I started the, the advisory business at Boldmore Growth Partners. Well, doesn't that also force a lot of leaders to kind of move out of working in their strengths? Well, it does because you end up and you end up making a lot of mistakes because you just don't know. You know, if your financials are being reported incorrectly, or you can't get the the, the growth capital you need because the banker doesn't like your financials, you don't understand why. And you know, there's there's so many things that you waste your time on. You're just not in your power alley. Mm-hmm. So, what have you found helps people move into that power alley? Well, so what we put together is kind of saying, you know, what we, here's what kind of frustrated me. So small business owners are doing all this hard work and creating all these jobs with nothing. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to take the best of Wall Street, Harvard Business School, Boston Consulting Group, all of that and package it up and automate as much as I can and deliver it to small business owners to really help them, to give them insight, to give them answers, to be prescriptive. Hey, if this, then that, right? And to benchmark, to show them how they're doing and to point out areas of immediate improvement to quantify that and prioritize that. And and it's amazing because at first I kind of made some mistakes. At first I tried, I thought, well, let me, let me you know, teach a small business owner how to read financial statements. And I thought, no, 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 I don't want to try to turn them into a CPA. Uh, let me let me help you know train them how to do sales and marketing. And it's like no no I don't want to try to turn them into a sales and marketing. You either have that DNA or you don't, right? So to me the answer was surround them with a really good set of information and dashboards and so forth that just tells them kind of exactly what's going on, uh, quantifies that issue and tells them what to do about it because they're working so many hours and so hard they don't have time to go learn new lessons. So the answer for a lot of people is, well, you should buy this analytics dashboard and analyze your business. You know, well, that's trying to turn a small business owner into an analyst, right? No, no, they just want to know, how am I doing? 
what should I do differently? And what will be the impact if I do that? And oh, by the way, of all the things I should be doing, what are the top three? And so that's what we put together is just, just sort of surround them with help. And so the purpose in my advisory business, it's a grand purpose. We say we, we're here to help entrepreneurs maximize everything they do. Right, including living out their faith, including having more influence in their communities because their businesses you know, enlarge their territory, like the, the prayer of Jabez. Right, so uh, and that that's great purpose. We've had I've had owners' uh, wives cry when they meet me, saying, "You've made such a big difference in our lives." You know, it's really purposeful awesome. to help them. Yeah. So you've put that all, all that together. Um, you know, how do people find out more information? You know, about what that looks like. I, I know there's a lot of business owners that are all focused on growth, and I'll guarantee you they can relate to what you just shared. And you know, they'd love some help getting to that. You know, that next level, that vision of influence and impact that they have. Yeah, so our website is boldmore.com, like more bold, more courage. So B O L D M O R E dot com. One of the biggest issues right now is the ten trillion dollar problem. The vast majority of all small business owners are aging baby boomers. On average, they're sixty-two years old. I'm quoting the Exit Planning Institute data. Every year they do a very detailed and extensive survey. So there's about ten trillion in small business ownership value that will be trans in the next five to 10 years because of the age of these business owners. And um, for the vast majority of them, the vast majority of all of their wealth is tied up in their business. Very few of them have thought about a transition or have a transition advisor or know what their business is worth. It's almost like, you know, when you go to a non-believer and you say, well, what would happen if you died tomorrow? Would you go to heaven or not? And they kind of go, ah, I don't want to think about that, right? You don't, you, you don't want to think about death. It's, it's kind of like too scary. You want to push it, push it off. It's the same with business owners. It's almost like they don't want to think about transition because it's sort of the, it's sort of the death of their purpose. It's the death of their identity, right? Because they're usually so tied up in their business. So, so right now, front and center is this huge $10 trillion problem of all these businesses and business owners that have not thought about transition, but they will face it. Now, the Exit Planning Institute data would also say that 50% of them are going to have a transition forced upon them. It'll be involuntary. You know, it'll be the five Ds, death, divorce, disability, disease, or, or disable. Uh, so it's going to happen. 50% and, are going to be in that category. Mm-hmm. And they're not ready because the vast majority haven't even thought about it. And, and if I haven't thought about it, the value that I'm expecting from that company is going to probably be very different from what I'm probably hoping or imagining or, or even have planned for. Well, to quote George Gendron, the former editor-in-chief of Inc. Magazine, he says, the overwhelming majority of small business owners create zero equity. They spend a lifetime building a company only to discover when it's time to sell it's worthless. And uh, the reason is because they're calling all the shots. You know, it's a hub and spoke model. Uh, they're working super hard. And, you know, who's going to come along and pay them a bunch of money to let them walk out the door and golf? And then what do you got? You don't know where anything is. You know, the employees can't do anything. They haven't been empowered. So most small businesses don't create value other than the owner. It's kind of like the business owns the owner. Uh, but there's really, there's no way they can sell and walk away. So the challenge is, you, you know, we, we've taken on this challenge. Say we will, we 
we will help you create value. We'll help you prepare to sell and create value. We'll help you build a team, you know, learn to delegate, put all these things in place so that there is value, so that the business will survive your departure. So the more important an entrepreneur is to their business, the less valuable that business is. And so we, we try to help them kind of, you know, think of yourself as an investor. Think of yourself as chairman of the board, you know, get a team in place, delegate, you know. And a lot of times it's also just improved. They have to, you know, create more profits in order to hire more people. So it's improving on all dimensions, but, but helping them to, uh, to get to where they can actually sell and retire in dignity to live out the second half of their life, right? And, and not have this uh, be some rude surprise. Yeah, I know you're right down there in Dallas with the Halftime Institute. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people that would love to have that exit. And then that, you know, that next half of their life have the time and the resources, you know, step into a new calling, transition that identity from the business into, you know, uh, and follow their passions and their calling into that next season instead of, you know, wondering what's next. Absolutely. Yeah, so as as we wrap up, um, you know, as people have been listening to this whole conversation, just what what final thoughts and advice would you would you leave with people, Wade? Okay, so here's one that, that surprises people. I, I, I have this uh, number that I like to throw around where I say business leaders have eight thousand six hundred and twenty eight times more unbeliever influence than pastors. 8,628 times more influence than pastors. So how do I arrive at that? Well, real quick, 198 million Americans go to work every day. Uh, And let's just assume broad stroke that 75% are unbelievers and 25% are believers, right? There's probably fewer believers, but let's just say it's only 75% that are unbelievers. That's kind of the, you know, the big surveys typically say about that number. Uh, The average work week is 46 hours. So that's 6.8 billion hours of weekly influence that a business leader has because they're defining that person's work, they're paying that person, they have tremendous influence. So business leaders influence 6.8 billion hours of, of time, right? That they kind of own that time from those people. Now, 63 million Americans go to church, so only about one third of the number that go to work. And mostly they're all believers, right? So let's say there's only 5% of that church audience that are unbelievers. Uh, The average sermon, unfortunately, according to our research, is only one quarter of an hour. So that means that pastors preaching to unbelievers only have 800,000 hours of weekly influence. Um, in in in, uh, in terms of Americans, in t- because it's just such a short short sermon, and it's only once a week, right? And it's very, rarely an unbeliever in the audience. So my challenge and encouragement to business leaders is: we have tremendous influence for forty six hours a week, not only the lives of all of our employees but the lives of our employees, families, our customers, their families, our vendors, our community. I mean, this is unbelievable in terms of the influence. I'm just describing the employee's influence, right? But we have a lot of influence, and we need to use that for God's glory. So that's my final thought. That is awesome. And, you know, that lines up, you know, one of the things that we're focused on is Project 100. And and I always challenge people, you know, do you think just you as as a believer in the marketplace, seeing that as your mission field, in just in the next two years, 
can have a positive impact for the kingdom on just 100 lives in a way that those 100 people that you touch and influence and interface with could have a positive impact on another 100. Right, 100 times 100 is 10,000. And what if another two or three years down the road, those 10,000 people, because of how you're living out your life, touched 100 people? And so I think each person listening to this in the next four, five, six years literally can has a, could have a positive influence on a million people each. And, and I completely agree with you. The marketplace is the most influential place for us to have a kingdom impact. And largely, as believers, we have seeded that. And if you just even look at the influence that you know Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg have had on our culture and our society versus the entire you know evangelical community. I mean, it's not even a contest. And all we have to do is just step into that gap and, and be bold, right? Be more bold. Be courageous, live out that faith, and and we can we can significantly move that needle. And I think that's what that's what gets me excited every day, getting up uh, in the work that I get to do, uh, because that that's what that's all we do here. And I know that's what you do. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you again for your service and for this time, Wade. I just love this conversation. I wish we had more time. We need to have you back on. I'm sure our audience is absolutely going to love this and say, hey. Uh, let, let's keep going on that one. That was fantastic. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. Thanks for listening to Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and a link to the show notes for this episode. This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. In 1994, Bob Buford penned the book Halftime, moving from success to significance. And in the more than 20 years since then, more than three quarters of a million copies have been sold. It's touched baby boomers in the 90s, and it's now touching the lives of both Gen Xers who are in that midlife season asking, is this all there is? As well as baby boomers who are searching for significance in retirement. To get a free copy of the book, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. And after you read it, if you have any questions, you can have a no obligation one hour of halftime coaching. Eternalleadership.com slash halftime. You can't beat getting a free bestseller. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Eternal Leadership.